Tonight, Jesus is casting out demons. Now, to the Pharisees, they cannot believe that Jesus has this kind of power. So they say, oh, well, he must get his power from Beelzebub. What? Beelzebub? See, in Luke 11, Beelzebub is described as the prince of demons, so it's well understood that he is referencing the devil, Satan himself. Now, a little review here. The devil's original name was Lucifer and was God's first creation, but he later revolted against God and got one-third of the angels to revolt with him. God cast Lucifer out of heaven, and these one-third angels became demons. Now, the word Satan means adversary, and the word devil means accuser. But they say Beelzebub. Why? Well, let's break it down. See, if you look at the first part of the word Baal, it kind of sounds like Baal, who is a Canaanite fertility god, literally meaning Lord. The second part of the word Zebub means exalted dwelling. Especially in this area where pagan worship to Baal was so widely known and frowned upon, this would have been a huge accusation against Jesus. So there you go, a little bit about Beelzebub, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us open with prayer. Father, we thank you for a beautiful day. We thank you for a a day where we can just celebrate you, celebrate Jesus, your love for us, the fact that he came, died, and rose again for our sins, for our freedom, for our ability to be with you one day in heaven. Father, we love that we have a day like this. It should be every day, but we thank you for Easter. We thank you for this day that reminds us that you've got us, that you love us, and that we're yours. And for that, we are forever thankful. And we pray this in Jesus' name tonight and all God's people. So we're going to pick up in chapter 11, verse 5, but just as we do, I I think uh, preaching this text, especially in the midst of Easter, is kind of a cool thing. Uh, The first thing I want to give you is that Jesus had this already in mind as he's going toward Jerusalem for this final time, right? He's making his final trek. It's taken a while, right? It's taken us even longer, right, as we go through this this portion. But, But the reality is that Jesus already knows he's going to be turned over to the chief priests, He already knows he's going to be turned over to to Rome. He already knows that he's going to be killed, that he's going to die and rise again. He already knows all of this in advance. And as he's walking this final trek to Jerusalem, he's trying to make sure his disciples especially get all the important stuff. You can just imagine in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, when he's praying, he's probably saying, they're not ready. (laughs) I mean, I've been walking with them. They're just not ready. They're not getting it. They think this is going to be an earthly kingdom. This is going to be too big a shock for them, God. I think that as much of anything is what he was praying. But God, of course, does his work. The thing I want you to know, though, is you have this perspective now of going through Holy Week and Easter It's the same perspective that Jesus has as he's taking this final walk. And it colors all of his teaching from this point on. So that's one of the things I want you to get. And as we just went over the Lord's Prayer, right? Last week when when one of the disciples says, teach us to pray. One of the things I want you to see through this whole section, he's kind of talking about prayer over and over, is God saying this, or Jesus saying this, I've got you. Right? You don't have to do this all on your own power. That was one of the messages from this morning that I've got you. And and life is going to be hard, and especially when we get to Jerusalem, it's going to freak you out. But I've got you, and you can come to me with everything and anything, and not only will I hear, I'll answer. And so we pick up in verse 5. He just kind of shared with us the Lord's Prayer, and then he says this to them. Which of you who has a friend will not go to him, or will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are now in bed with me. I cannot get up to give you anything. 
I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. This is meant to be kind of a, a funny story. And, and hospitality was still a big deal in Jerusalem at this time. And of course, if you went over to a neighbor's house and, and asked for some bread, even if the guy came at midnight, totally rude, by the way, but even if he did that, right, you would get up and you'd give him something. This guy's saying, oh, I don't know, I'm already in bed. You know, maybe it was a family bed. The kids were all over. He'd be waking up everybody. He'd be rifling through the kitchen. Whenever get, who knows what the deal was? He just didn't want to get up. But his friend was still there knocking. And you know how that gets at you, and finally you get up and you go to the door and whatever. And a lot of people, when they read through this text, they think it's about persistence with God in prayer, but I think it's just even more simple than that. If this guy, even though he didn't want to get up, because of a friend asking him to do something, would answer that request, how much more would our Father in heaven, who loves us more than we can possibly comprehend, answer ours? See, one of the things God wants you to know and Jesus is trying to teach us here tonight is you can go to God with everything at any time. There is no nighttime. There is no too late. There is no inconvenient time with God. It's all okay. Come to him with your requests. He's never too busy. It's never a bad time. Come to God with your requests. He loves you. He is a father in heaven that wants you to be with him in heaven one day. He created you to love him. There is nothing about the father as he looks upon you that would ever make you an inconvenience. He loved you enough to send his son to die so that you could be with him in heaven. He loves you with an everlasting love. And then just to kind of hone in on that point, he says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened up to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. We talked about this several weeks ago. There seems to be this unbridled openness to God saying, just come to me with anything and I'll answer it. It was understood that a disciple would bring to him, though, godly things, right? Lord, help me with my temper. Help me, help me be with you in devotion. Things that, that, that not only would help them be the disciple God called them to be, or to love other people the way he's called them to love them. James talks about, you know, so often our prayers don't get answered because we pray very selfish prayers, prayers that, that only benefit us and not the people around us. He says, I'm not going to answer those kind of prayers. But, but for the rest of the stuff, he says, just come to me. When you're scared, come to me. When you're worried, come to me. When you're stressed out of your mind, come to me. When you're afraid, come to me. Come to me with all your stuff and know that I will hear and I won't answer. I share too in the morning session. A few weeks ago, I had a lawyer friend, right, and, and we were in a small group together, and he was an awesome guy, but just very lawyerly, right, very analytical, and I was talking about prayer one time, and I said, man, I tell you, you got to keep a prayer journal. You'd be blown away by how many prayers God answers. It's just extraordinary how often he comes through, and then I shared with him, we did a study one time at my last church, how many prayers on Sunday morning were answered, right? And we did this for over a course of like a four-month period of time, and we just, you know, listed the prayers, and, and, and then we listed all the prayers that, that were answered in that four-month period of time, over 90% of them. It was extraordinary. The thing that ones that we were praying on Sunday morning were actually, God was answering in the exact way that we were sharing, blew, it, blew me away. And so I was sharing this at the small group. And my buddy, he's like, okay, yeah, that, that's really interesting, Pastor. You know, and unbeknownst to me, he starts keeping a prayer journal because he doesn't believe a word I said. He's like, no, God couldn't possibly answer that often. And so for the next year, he kept his prayer journal, and he wrote down the prayers that he prayed, and then the next column, you know, when the prayer was answered, if it was answered. 
because he was going to prove me wrong at some point, right? So about a year goes by and prayer comes up in our small group again. I'm making a similar point and he says, I was waiting for this day. And I go, what are you talking about? I've been keeping a prayer journal last year, you know, because he talked about this, talked it up big, you know, the last time around. And, and he goes, you know what, Pastor? You were right. I'm actually blown away at how many of my prayers God has answered. I actually had 91% of my prayers answered. I tabulated them just the other day. And with the other 9%, he says, I can already see God doing work in that too. And so, so many of them aren't a no. It's just not yet, not yet. And some of even the no's, I know he's given a perspective on why that's been a no. He says, I would have never, ever believed it had I not taken up that challenge and kept this prayer journal. I am blown away by the faithfulness of God. And this is a really analytical guy. He goes, the thing that has changed to me is I can now go to God with everything because nothing in my life has a 91% return rate. He goes, it is awesome. And that's what Jesus is trying to share with us. Come to me. Don't use me as a last resort. Come to me. Come to me as a father that you know cares about you. And because he's a father, not a vending machine, right? Sometimes he says no, but even with the no's in life, I just want you to have a perspective. Take a step back. Does God have a bigger perspective than we do? In other words, can he see all of the future and the present at the same time? Does he know the ramifications of some of the answered prayers that he would give to us, if it would destroy us or if it would be good for us down the line? Absolutely he does. And so sometimes, if you could just take a step back, God says no to our seemingly good prayer requests at times just to protect us. I use the illustration of winning the lottery in the morning, right? A lot of you guys would think that would be a good answer to prayer. I don't know what it is now. I'm sure it's like 500 million or something like that. But, but the reality is, if, what if you won that and you could handle that? But what if I could speak with certainty because I'm God that it would destroy your kid's salvation? And upon your death as it was being disseminated into the rest of your family, it would destroy your family's relationships with one another. Anybody see a family destroyed by a will? <laughs> Absolutely. Is it worth it now to win that lottery if you know that none of your kids would be with you in heaven? If you knew for certainty that it would destroy the, all the relationships in your family? Sometimes God just says no, and you might say yes, but God cares about your family, right? And he would say, sometimes God just says no because he cares about us, because he loves us, because he wants to protect us. Is, do you think God sometimes has greater purpose than we can imagine? Absolutely. To get things done that we couldn't possibly imagine. Do you think sometimes he has a better way? I use Paul as an example of that. He wanted to go to Rome and preach to everybody. I want to take a cruise ship and all that kind of stuff over there, run out the Colosseum, send out flyers. He went to Rome as a prisoner in chains. He was hooked up to a Roman guard, a praetorium guard, 24-7 in a rotating shifts. These guys became the future leaders of Rome. So in that, going to, to Rome as a prisoner, he got to witness, and Scripture tells us he did, to all these future leaders in Rome on a continual basis. He was sidelined enough in prison where he wrote most of the New Testament. And so not only did he affect Rome in his day far more than he could have ever imagined, he also affected all of church history, all of humanity for all of time because of the words that made its way into the New Testament. God says, come to me, come to me, come to me. I've got you. Trust me with your life. And one of my encouragements today is do that, <laughs> to stop making him a last resort. Stop getting frustrated at his waits or his not yets and recognize that he's doing things because he loves you. 
And then he goes on and says this, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if, his, if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, when you come to me, I'm not going to give you crummy stuff because I don't like you or want to mess with you. I answer your requests in the best possible way for you. Sometimes that means yes, absolutely, apparently less like 90% of the time. Sometimes he says wait, usually over the big things in life, I think, it feels like. And sometimes he says no because I've got something better. You've got to trust me, but there is something better. And then he goes on. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled, but some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking him uh, for a sign from heaven. It's interesting, Mike was talking about that. I also came across some literature that said that Beelzebub not only was a reference to Baal, right, the prince of demons, and they kind of equated it to Satan, but they also was a Canaanite god It was with this name or something similar to this name, and it means Lord of the Flies, which actually uh, most scholars, or a lot of scholars think they even perverted even more to Lord of the Dung, right? So they were very uh, mean or mean-spirited toward this prince of the demons, this prince of the evil one, right? Toward Satan himself. And they said, it's by this prince of the dung, this, 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 this God of the dung that you're doing all these things. It's by Satan himself that you're casting out these demons. And he knows their thoughts. And so he, there's two questions here. There's one that he's doing that and the other one wants to see a sign. So he starts with the first question. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided house falls. I think we can all recognize the truth of that. You watch divorce in families. Is that anything that brings unity? Is that anything that brings help and goodness or anything? No, it brings destruction. It brings kids seeing that there's a way to work one parent against the other. It divides and destroys in every way, and it's just a difficult thing to walk through. Even, even when it's for godly reasons. You're still dealing with the outflow of the effect that it's had on the kids. You're still dealing with the outflow of, of the ramifications of the kids seeing that there's a way forward without having to go through the parents necessarily. You look at companies when they have two different kind of visions and how that messes with things. You look at a church, if you've ever been part of a church with conflict, you can see how a little dumb thing can destroy people hearing the message, can destroy people from seeing the most important things, Jesus, and they get caught up in the dumbest of things. There was a church that split over red carpet or green carpet. They had this amazing opportunity to actually do something nice in their sanctuary. They had saved up for years and years. It's time to put new carpet in the sanctuary. They were so excited, so they started a building committee, and the building committee looked at the carpet they say we all agree on the kind of carpet we got to get but they disagreed on the color I don't know what the colors were but I'm gonna say one was green and one was red does it really matter what color the carpet is in the grand scheme of things when it comes to church no it matters that Jesus Christ is proclaimed it matters that we show love to one another it matters that we love God that's what church is about. It's about connecting us to the most powerful entity in the world, the one who loved us, the one that forgave us, the one that died for us, all those different things. The color of carpet just doesn't matter. And yet this church divided over the color of carpet. There was a guy, a, a master student, uh, or a doctor student at seminary, when I heard this story, he was saying, you know what the best question would have been to ask in the midst of that? Which color 
best represents God's love for us. At least got him talking about something that was important. Is it red and his crucifixion on the cross? Or is it green and the growth that he gives us through the Holy Spirit? Just use the, the colors that we use up front, right? I mean, what do we want to be most about as a church? At least discuss something that God was doing and how the colors were a representation of that. It would have got them at least back to main things. But because they couldn't agree, they divided. One time we put the, the upper shades up and the bottom shades down, freaked everybody out. There's people after church that didn't hear the message anymore, but what did they get caught up in? I did not like the lighting situation in the church today. They lost sight of main things and got caught up in dumb things. But do you see how often we do that? It happens literally all the time. One of Paul's big encouragements all the way through his letters in the New Testament are you've got to strive for unity in the church. We've got to be of one mind and one spirit. It doesn't mean we can't disagree. It just means we've all got to be on the same team. And we start forming teams in opposition to one another. Disunity enters in, and with that, all the sins available to Satan and his minions. And he gets a foothold, and he causes destruction. But it's not just in the church. It's not just in the families. It's, it's everywhere. It's in nations. Look at our nation today. Do we have unity in our nation? Not right now. It would take an external force of great import to all of a sudden unify us. I referenced you 9-11. And all of a sudden, for a season, we were unified against something else. So he's just saying that a kingdom divided against itself just doesn't work. It, it falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will that kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, who do your guys, who do your sons cast them out? By. Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I want to share a couple of points in relation to this. It's interesting how Satan works, right? He's always working against God's kingdom all the way through history, even today. I'll give you a point. I gave it at Wednesday morning Bible class, and I just think it's an interesting point. Do you know that Islam and secularism are polar opposites? Right? One stands for women's rights. One just sent out, I just sent out a video on how to beat your wife. Because, you know, I guess you got to know the right way to do it. I, I don't know. But one's for women's rights. One's not for women's rights. One's for secularism, for sexual experimentation. ISIS is not for any of that. And in fact, in those nations where there is no Christianity and they're, they're actually going to war with one another, actually they're killing people that are pursuing those things in those countries. They're polar opposites in ideology in every possible way. And yet, in our world today, they are allies. Allies in their fight against Jews and Christians, allies in their fight against certain political ideologies. They're allies even in our country. Even though they're polar opposites, they're fighting against a similar thing. Just an interesting thing, in the nations where Christianity isn't a thing, like when they're 97, 98% Islam, they're destroying one another. Even in Europe, they're starting to feel some of the, the, the birth pains of that ideology fight between the polar opposites. They've gotten done defeating their common enemy, and now they're turning on one another. But when Satan's working on his purposes, they're not fighting against each other. For a house divided always falls. And yet you see the brilliance of Satan's scheme. After I've used them to do my purpose, I'm going to use them to destroy each other. It's a fascinating thing as you just kind of look at our world today. Um, but then he goes on and says, okay, so who do your guys do it by? And then he says this, and 
He says, therefore, they will be your judges. But in verse 20, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, he's just saying, but if it's by God that I'm doing these things, just like some of your guys, then it's time to wake up and smell the coffee. Then it's time to start listening to the things that I'm saying a little bit more clearly. Then it's time to repent and to receive the forgiveness that God has for you. Because it means the kingdom of God isn't just near. The kingdom of God has come upon you. It is at hand. It is now. He's walking toward Jerusalem. It's weeks away where all the stuff that we've just experienced this last week goes down. He's walking toward Jerusalem and he says, now is the time to figure this out. Now is the time to open up your ears. Now is the time to pay attention gives it a, another parable. He says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own place, he's talking about Satan here, his goods are safe. But when a stronger man attacks him and, and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So he's saying when Jesus comes and overcomes, he's able to cast demons out of people. He's able to set things right. He's able to expel Satan from different places. And then he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. The interesting way to think of this is the kingdom of God is ultimately about the expulsion of evil. When you think about heaven, there is no evil in heaven, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more evil. The kingdom of God comes to expel the evil on earth. Jesus, first and foremost, offers forgiveness to the evil that they might find life. To those who reject it, there's an end times of which the evil are eventually expunged. But the kingdom of God is about the expulsion of evil. And I just encourage you to think about that just for a second. Are you all in when it comes to the expulsion of evil? Are you all in on what that looks like? Because we all struggle with our pet sins. We all struggle with stuff in life that we struggle to give up, that we struggle to not do, that we continually need to go back to God for forgiveness for. Are you all in when it comes to rooting that stuff out of your life? Are you all in and making him a priority as the most important thing in your life? I say that's a struggle for a lot more people. So I can't tell you the number of people that say, I'm gonna put my kid as the most important thing and not God. I'm gonna put my spouse as the most important thing and not God. I'm gonna put drugs as the most important thing and not God. I'm gonna put my work as the most important thing and not God. I'm gonna put money as the most important thing and not God. Are you ready to give up those things for the kingdom of God? God says, I need to be first. You're either for me or you're against me. Is there a greater love in your life, whether it be sin or some other thing that you put up as a false idol? Is there some other thing in your life that's more important? You're either for me or you're against me. Remember we went through Genesis and Lot and his wife and his kids, they were all fleeing, right, from, from Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does Lot, Lot's wife do? Longing for the things she was leaving behind. She looked back. God said, don't look back. There's bad things will happen if you look back. She looked back because part of her heart just couldn't give up those things even though she knew that God was saving her. Even though she knew that God was taking her to a place of safety, she struggled giving up the things of this world. God ultimately says, you're either for me or you're against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
Then he goes on to another piece. It says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. So it's speaking about the context of casting out demons. So where do these demons go when they go out of a person? And he tells us they go and they, they kind of round around the desert or wherever it is, right? They just go looking for a new home. In this case, the, the demon couldn't find one. So he says, I will return to the house from which I came. Go back to the person I was just cast out from. And when it comes, it finds the house swept clean and put order. In other words, the guy's in his right mind. Every single circumstance in Scripture where a demon was cast out, what happens? The person comes to a right-mindedness, a clear-mindedness, a place of sanity again, where they're in control of themselves all anew, where there's no more voices, you know, all that kind of stuff. So the house was put in order and swept clean. Then he goes out and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. If you cast out a demon, and again, they were accusing him of casting out in the name of Satan, right? If you cast out a demon and you don't replace it with Christ, the house is empty. You don't even need to break in. You can just come on in at your leisure. You need to replace it with Christ. Christ is the only one that died to give us victory over Satan and his minions. He's the only one that died to forgive our sins. He's the only one that protects us from the evil one. But with his protection, we need not fear anything. With his protection, we can glorify that we've been given victory over all those different things. But you've got to, again, in the context of casting them out and replacing them with Christ, you've got to put the kingdom of God first. As he said all these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. So if there was any text in all of Scripture that would talk about the veneration of Mary, all Jesus had to do was say, absolutely, let's, let's bless my mom, right? What son doesn't want to bless his mom? That would be just an awesome thing. But instead, Jesus had a greater purpose in this. And he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Yeah, my mom was cool, he would say. But the true blessing comes from those that hear God's word and follow it. And that there's blessing as a result of that. Remember we went through the, the Ten Commandments, we went through Exodus and so much of this stuff. And, and one of the things that I just shared with you about the law, the law doesn't save, right? It, it condemns, but, but it gives us amazing instruction to find blessing. You are blessed 99% of the time when you follow God's will for your life, when you obey the Ten Commandments. You have fewer marriage issues if you don't commit adultery. Is that fair? Yeah. yeah. You have better relations with your parents if you honor them, right? You have a better relationship with God if you remember the Sabbath day. All these kind of things, it just, it's like common sense. But God says, if you follow me, 99.9% of the time, I'm going to bless you. The world can interfere. There's original sin, all those kind of things. That accounts for the point one. But even in those times, is God working things for your good? Absolutely. And so he says, follow me. And it doesn't bring salvation. Jesus is the only one that forgives sins. But I tell you what, it gives you a great way forward in terms of blessing your life in ways that are less painful, less complicated than the ways that we also often choose. Blessed is he who hears the word of God and follows it. And if you believe that Jesus is sharing the true word of God, follow him. He will lead you to life and forgiveness and renewal and new beginnings in heaven. Follow him for the kingdom of God is at hand. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it. 
You know, when I was first reading that, it was hard for me to understand. Well, they were just asking for some proof, right? But I'll take you back to Genesis again, right? They were walking out of Egypt. They had just seen, what, 10 plagues? God rained down his power upon Egypt, free him. They were following a pillar of fire. Remember that? Angel of God in it. That was leading them through the desert. They get up to this cul-de-sac next to the sea and God opens the Red Sea. They go through that. They watch the whole army of the Egyptians wiped out. God saves them again and again with sign after sign after sign after sign. They get to the other side and they get a little thirsty. And what do they do? They doubt God. And was that the only time they doubted God in the desert? No, the pillar of fire was still there. God's word was with there. He continually talked to Moses. He was continually a presence. He protected them from enemies. He did all, but they doubted him again and again and again and again, as if to say there is no sign. If you refuse to believe, it's going to be enough. Let's take you back to the, the present. Jesus had done countless miracles. He had fed thousands and thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. He had healed countless, probably thousands and thousands of people. He had cast out demons. He had brought back sight. He had made mute people speak over and over. He made wine at his first party, at the first wedding he went to or whatever. I mean, he, he did all sorts of miracles in the sight of the disciples and in the sight of the people. They were blown away. He had just done miracles right now as he cast out demons. And yet they wanted another sign. If you refuse to believe, there is no sign that's going to be enough. It may wow you in the moment, but it won't be enough. Let me take it to your life. Are there times where God has answered your prayers, and as you look at your life, you believe it was an answered prayer or a miracle from God doing something in your life that was just blowing you away and powerful? And as you look back, you go, Yeah, I remember how I felt. Since then, have you doubted? The goodness of God, the presence of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God. We are awesome forgetters. We are awesome doubters. So Jesus again and again and again says, just trust me, I've got you, you're mine. He did say though, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. Remember Jonah? Jonah was called to go and preach to Nineveh. Nineveh was prophesied by other prophets and also him that, that they were going to be the ones that to destroy Israel. <laughs> so he, he just did not have a propensity or a desire to go preach to Nineveh because he didn't want to save him. He wanted to be totally destroyed. He didn't want any of those prophecies coming true. So when God told him to go and preach to them that they may repent and find forgiveness, he was like, no way. So, as a way to make sure that would never happen, he got on a ship and headed the other way towards Spain. I'm not going, he said. And so he got on the boat. And if you remember the story, the weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tough. The the sailors said, what's going on? Jonah said, I'm running away from the Lord. He said, what should we do? Oh, just throw me over. I'd rather die then go and do what God has asked me to do. So they throw him over, everything becomes peaceful, and a giant fish swallows him up, spits him out less than 100 miles from Nineveh, the shores of the Mediterranean, at which point he gets up and he goes, all right, 
goes into Nineveh, preaches probably half-heartedly, right, at best, to, for them to repent, turn from their evil ways, and it was a wicked city. There's no reason in the world they should listen to him. Goes and preaches. They repent wholeheartedly, turn from their sin, repent of everything they had done, and are saved. So God says, Jesus says, I'll give you that sign. And if you think through the last week, he was in the ground for three days and he rose again so that people could repent and be saved. That's why he did what he did, so people could repent and be saved. Do you get how repentance is still a big deal? All the way through, from the very first sermon, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Repent for the kingdom of God is here. Repent and be saved, every one of you. And then Jesus goes on to kind of build on this. He says, The queen of the south will rise up at judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. Queen of Sheba came to Solomon to visit him, to experience his great wisdom, the wisdom of God. She traveled a huge distance to get there because she desired to hear what it was that Solomon's God had to say. She came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, someone greater than Solomon is here, and you don't have to travel anywhere. I'm right here. All you have to do is open your eyes. All you have to do is open your ears. I'm right here. The men of Nineveh, we just talked about them, will rise in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they actually repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. They would all experience shortly Jesus dying and they would all hear the reports of him rising again. So many were troubled that when Peter gave his first sermon, 3,000 people came to the church that day and turned their lives over to Jesus. Jerusalem was a lot bigger than 3,000. The reality is, he says, listen to what I have to say. Hear this message and repent and receive everything. Receive life, receive forgiveness, receive renewal, receive strength, receive heaven, receive the kingdom of God. So no one after lighting a light lamp puts it in the cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who, may, who, those who enter may see the light. Now all the way through scripture, light is referred to God's truth, right? Or, or, or God speaking to us. And so you think light, you think darkness. When you're in the light, you're in God's truth. You're in his love, you're in his protection, you're in his care, all those different things. And so let me just ask you, where do you put your light? Do you shine it? Something's going off. I don't know what that is. Um, but, or maybe I'm just hearing things. Okay, but where do you put your light? Is it something that you share with your neighbors? Is it on your front door? Is it something you proclaim to your neighborhood? Is it something that you talk about at work? Is it something that you talk about with your friends? Is it something that you talk about with your family? Do they all know that you're a believer in the Lord Jesus? Do they all know that you're passionate about his care for you? Do you, they all know how much you love them? Do you share it with family? Or do we hide it? The reality is I think we all hide it in certain places, right? We don't let our light shine before the people around us. And why do we want our, let our, our light shine? So the people can see the truth about Jesus and his love for us and his care for us and be transformed and saved by the love of God. When we hide it, we don't do him any favors. We don't share with anybody how much he can do for them. Then the media has full run and they don't like Christians and they trash us in every possible way. They talk about our judgment and 
Don't get me started on that. That's not one of our best characteristics, right? But the reality is we should be showing the love of God, the care of God, the compassion of God, the mercy of God. We should be sharing with them the good stuff. In fact, the morning series is going to be all about the good stuff of God. That's what we need to be sharing with the world about Jesus. That's what they're clamoring for. That's what they're yearning for. That's what they need. Do you let your light shine? goes on quickly. I'm just going to try to finish up this section. Your eye is a lamp of your body, and when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. And so think of your eyes as kind of these, these, this lantern that surrounds the, the light inside, or the light outside trying to get in. If your eyes are good, the light comes, the truth comes in, and it affects your heart, and it affects your behavior, and it affects the way you treat other people in your life. If your eyes are cloudy, that light has trouble getting in. It keeps getting diffracted, and it doesn't ever get to your heart. There's all sorts of people here on Sunday morning, right? That Easter morning. It was awesome. And some came in, and I know God got through all the way, and he did something awesome in their lives because they told me on the way out. But I promise you, there were some that came in, it just glanced off. Maybe they were tired. Maybe they caught, caught up because the top part wasn't raised. I don't know. But the reality is they, they just somehow missed what was happening. And they didn't hear about the love of God. And they didn't hear the transformational message of Jesus. And they didn't hear that he's the way, the truth, and the life. They just missed it. When our eyes get cloudy, it's because we have other things that are more important than Jesus. We have other priorities, we have other idols, we have other sins that we just don't want to give to him. And I promise you, if I come to you and I confront you on a sin that you don't want to give up, you do not want to talk to pastor, right? Hey, thanks, but I'm going to go way over here, right? When people are doing something wrong, they don't want to talk to me. They want to talk to me when they need help, right? When they recognize their sin, when they want to be reminded of that God's got them, that he loves them. But when they're in the midst of sinning, they want to be as far away from me, far away from the Bible, far away from church as they can go. When our eyes get cloudy, it's because we've allowed other things to take a priority in our life that ought not to be there. But he says, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no dark part, it is wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays give you light. And then you can't hide it. I'd go into some other things today we could talk about, but I'm just going to end there because I'm just noticing the time. So we'll pick up maybe with some of those next week. Let me pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for Easter, a day that we remind ourselves, or at least are reminded of how amazing you are, of how much you love us. It's a reminder that you love us, that you've got us, that we're yours. It's a, it's a reminder that Jesus provided all these things for us. It's a reminder that you want us to be with you in heaven one day. It's a reminder that as we walk through this life, it is often difficult at times that you give us a strength to endure, a hope that gives us just energy to keep moving forward, a forgiveness that releases us from the past. It's a day that we remember just how amazing you are. And so our prayer today is that you'd help us remember not just today, but tomorrow and next week, next month, the next year, because we are awesome forgetters. But Father, we need you as we go through this life. We need you to give us a sender. We need you to give us a forgiveness so that we can focus more on the future and on fixing things than on rehearsing the past. We need you to give us a strength to deal with problems. We need you to give us a hope so that we don't give up. We need you to remind us that there's heaven. We need to be reminded. So our prayer today is that you would do this, that, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.